you can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Hello and welcome to the edition. I'm Lara Prendergast. Each week, we look at some of the most important and intriguing pieces in the magazine with the writers behind them. This week, we'll look at the explosive paper that's guiding the government's response to coronavirus, as revealed by The Spectator. I'll also speak to Lionel Shriver, who says she's reluctantly voted for Joe Biden in this year's presidential election. And to finish, I'll find out whether coronavirus spells the end for the big screen. First up, the constantly tightening social restrictions can sometimes seem nonsensical, to say the least, with the government rarely revealing the basis upon which it makes its decisions. But in this week's cover piece, Fraser Nelson publishes the details of Sage's reasonable worst-case scenario plan, which is now guiding decision-making. Fraser joins me now, along with Carl Hennigan, a professor in evidence-based medicine at the University of Oxford. Fraser, in your cover piece this week, you reveal the details of a SAGE document modelling the worst-case scenario for COVID-19 this winter. Can you explain what it shows and why you've put it on the cover of the magazine this week? What we're publishing is what's called the Reasonable Worst-Case Scenario. Now, this is a hugely important document in UK pandemic planning because this is the scenario that other government departments are supposed to plan around. Not plan around what they think is realistically going to happen, but plan around a worst case. This is what's happened in swine flu. And the important thing is that when we're trying to find out why the government's doing what it's doing, why are they moving to these tier restrictions, we need to know the scenario they've got in mind. For some reason, they're not telling us. SAGE tries to be more transparent. It tries to release various documents. It releases the minutes of its meetings, but it hasn't released this all-important, reasonable worst-case scenario. Now, the one that we um, have released was drafted at the end of July. So back in the summer, you could see that SAGE was, even then, planning for a second wave even bigger than the first, one that will have 85,000 direct deaths from COVID that compares to about 60,000 deaths which we've had so far, not necessarily direct ones from COVID. This also explains why the Prime Minister was so hesitant about joining Rishi Sunak's Eat Out to Help Out campaign, because his advisers were telling him that in a few weeks' time, actually they thought in November, you would start to get a big escalation. And it wouldn't be over in a few weeks, as the last COVID peak was. It would be a slow burner. It would keep on going and peak at the end of February or the beginning of March. So we're talking about six months more, at least, of various restrictions. Now, I am a, you know, as a journalist, I'm completely unequipped to say whether I think this scenario is realistic or otherwise. But I think it's important that people know what government advisors are being told, that they know how bad the government thinks it could be. And that we, when we hear, as we did in the Daily Telegraph on Monday, that Boris Johnson thinks the second wave could be even worse than the first, that we know why he thinks that. So that's why we've published them, to help the government level with the public. Carl, this is the latest in many predictions that we've seen from Sage. Uh, Do you think that this document is to be taken seriously? So, look, I think there's a real problem in the way evidence emerges in this pandemic. There are a significant number of documents like this that are not transparent, not put out there in the open, not subject to peer review, which is what normally we do. We'd road test them. You get a wider viewpoint from people to look at this and say, is this reasonable? 
So the first thing I would say is the current approach is unreasonable, so I would take that out of the way. And then we've seen this worst-case scenario approach continue throughout this pandemic. But what's happening now is we're seeing a continual recycling of the numbers and they change all the time. So, for instance, we've seen the MRC produce estimates for deaths in the last three or four weeks that have changed three times. We've seen recently a change from exponential growth to now saying there's a different prediction. And to be honest with you, I am utterly confused because nobody is explaining to us even some of these terms. So when it says number of direct COVID-19 deaths, that requires a level of analytics and interpretation of the data that's just not available right now. And I am finding it very difficult to understand what's going on. So it doesn't surprise me that the Prime Minister is in a pickle, as you've said, because I think what's happening now is we're confusing two major issues. One issue is trying to understand the data in detail and separate that from the policy decisions. And I think the two are becoming intertwined in the thinking because there's a lack of robust thinking about these numbers. And... I have to say right now is the numbers I keep seeing seem to have an agenda that is based around suppression and further lockdown all the time. And I have a great problem with this data because also what it doesn't do is model the wider impacts of any suggested impact if you do suppression or lockdown. And I think this is an important aspect of where we are now because what's happening is It means we're failing to look at alternative approaches and alternative strategies, for instance, to protect those that are the most vulnerable. And I'll give you one example of where the problem is. If you tell me that a number of direct COVID deaths are going to be 85,000 over winter, you're going to have a significant portion of them are going to be hospital-acquired infection. We've just been looking at the data and it suggests it could be as high as 20-25% in areas like the northwest. There's a, a failure to understand the granularity of that statement and its impact on health services and how to intervene differently. There has to be a change of approach here. The first thing I'd start with is transparency of putting these documents in the public domain and allowing them to be critically analysed by wider groups. Carl, one of the claims that the document makes is that the second wave is going to be bigger than the first, but why 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 would that be the case given that people are now wearing masks using hand sanitizer we've got the track and trace system up does it seem a bit strange to you that that's the prediction well i think what's happening here is the way the people are predicting the models is they're basically saying the antibody test is the only immunity so when they look at them levels they say they're eight nine percent or ten percent they're basically saying 90 percent of the population is still susceptible But they're failing to understand some basic principles of immunology and of our ability to fight infection. So that's the first issue. I think there's a naive approach to some of the aspects of understanding the susceptible population. The second issue that surprises me is the failure to understand where the major problem was. So in the first wave, 40% of the problems was in care homes. So if you're going to solve this problem, you have to have a different approach to care homes in terms of 
reducing their risk of having outbreaks, and if they have outbreaks, a better supportive care system. So, for instance, in Hong Kong, they have intensive clinical care teams that go into the care homes to support individuals. We haven't thought anything like that about that issue there. So it does surprise me that people are telling me the number of direct COVID deaths will be 80,000, 90,000. Now, there's a very interesting report that the PHE produced called the England Fingertips Report, which looks at the excess deaths. And although the majority of COVID deaths occur in hospital, their last week was about 32,000, 33,000. The actual number of excess deaths in hospital is only about eight to 9,000 compared to the five-year average. So what that means is, is that actually the majority of deaths of excess deaths are occurring in care homes or in the private own home setting. Now, if you think about that, that's where you should be putting your resources if you want to reduce the number of deaths. But there is a lack of strategic thinking at the moment about initiatives in terms of analysing the data, breaking it down, trying to understand what's going on. I was looking at some data last night. Again, that's not in the public domain. That's starting to say the care home problem is now emerging and is going to contribute significantly to the mortality. And in the first outbreak, for every outbreak you saw in a care home, about average, there was about two to three deaths per care home. So suddenly, if you have 100 care homes with outbreaks, you're looking at two to 300 deaths. That's how you suddenly scale out the numbers and get the problem and how you create panic among policymakers. And this information is critical that it's now broken down so people can understand what's happening. Fraser, there are new lockdowns right across Europe starting, starting to come in. Do you think pressure is growing on the British government to bring one in here? Oh, there's no doubt that pressure on Boris Johnson will be huge. I would be surprised if he manages to resist pressure for a national lockdown, but we, we will see. I mean, the problem is that only a couple of weeks ago he was talking to Emmanuel Macron and Macron was saying, look, uh, Prime Minister, Britain and France have got to avoid these national lockdowns. Local lockdowns has got to be the way to go. And now Boris is seeing Macron panic and impose a national lockdown saying, look, the data is the virus is growing too fast. No matter what we do, we're going to end up with 9,000 people in intensive care in France. When you see that sort of momentum, it becomes a lot harder to resist it, unless you're a country like Sweden, where the response is governed by the, by the public health authority. They've got a remit to look not just at the epidemic, but at wider public health as well, cancer, um, heart disease, everything else. And that's why Sweden avoided the lockdown first of all. Part of the problem in Britain is that SAGE, SPY-M, even the Joint Biosecurity Committee, they all just look at the epidemic. There isn't another SAGE team which is looking at the wider health response. And that is an imbalance in our system, is one that other countries don't have. So I think the country's response will be informed by the system that they've got. Right now, ours is very heavily weighted towards looking at the virus and doing things that suppress the virus. Now, when it comes to calculating what harm would be caused by lockdown, that's something you simply don't see on that worst-case scenario. Now, 
One of the reasons we published the whole document, rather than simply my report of it, was to let everybody see the way these decisions are made. Nowhere on that document do you see anybody estimating what's going to happen for people staying away from hospitals, what's going to happen or the effect of mental health. Swedes are doing that calculations, other people have, but that simply isn't part of the British equation. Now, what I think you ought to have in democracies is not just peer review, as Professor Henningham was saying. Of course, any calculations ought to be put out to peer review so people can attest how robust they are, but also the other side of the argument. You need a sort of a red team, as it were, inside government, challenging the assumptions of the other part of government. Now, because that's not happening right now, you've got to imagine Boris Johnson sitting there in a room with Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance, both of whom were urging a circuit breaker several weeks ago. He's resisted that pressure. Now it seems to me quite apparent he's going to really struggle to resist it for much longer. He's got the opposition Keir Starmer is saying, look, we want a circuit breaker now. And what's he really going to say in response? That the sage figures don't look right to him, Oxford-trained classicist? It's very difficult politically not to take the advice of the sage committee. The sage don't decide, but under our system, sage are the only show in town when it comes to advising the government. Professor Hennigan, you said that lockdown should be a last resort. Do you still think that's the case? Well, look, can I, can I just pick up on Fraser's point first? Because this is crucial. Now, I work with a wide array of people who are have done criticised and appraised reports for places like NICE, they do epidemiology, health economic evidence, and what we do when we produce these reports, we try and make, facilitate an evidence-based decision. We try and not lead decision makers, but rather present the evidence in a transparent way so that they can understand the uncertainties in the data. And we never cross the line in telling them what to do. But I looked yesterday and one of my colleagues sent me an email. He was outraged when we looked at React 1 of the conclusions in the paper. Instead of reflecting the incidence data, the uncertainties, where there may be errors within their estimates of 100,000 a day, their conclusions cross a political line that we never see in normal decision making. And they make statements about what should happen as opposed to reflect the uncertainty in the data. And this has to fundamentally stop because it's not my job when assimilating evidence to decide the policy. My job is to be able to reflect the uncertainties in the information. So look at where we are today. We have React 1 saying it's 100,000 infections. Today, MRC say it's 50,000, and yet the government says it's about 23,000 on the staging data. So we're left here going, oh my gosh, nobody's really got a clue what's going on. There must be significant errors in the data, significant uncertainties, and therefore that's what we would present and say, actually, across them three, which one do you take? Well, actually, it needs to go back to the drawing board to create more robust methods of understanding exactly what's going on. Because when you start to dig into the data, analyse it in detail, you see in some areas of the country, in the northwest, cases are now slowing in a flat line. Therefore, if you understand and break that down in detail, provide that to the decision makers, they can come up with a much more nuanced decision of what to do. But that's failing because they've been sold a political message by scientists, which I find unacceptable. It's, it's, it's been an incredibly important issue, this as a scientist and evidence, is to 
is to not get into the policy. And I have to say, media, lots of people ask me, what should we do next? Where should we go? And, and I keep going. We have to come back to the data and provide that data in a way that policymakers can make an informed decision. Y yes, uh, I was struck by that too. The way that um, researchers from Imperial College, for example, are not simply supplying the data. We heard, you know, that there, there are now like almost 50,000 cases a day, according to them. They then after they've presented the data, they'll then go on the, on the radio or give quotes saying, this is why we need tighter restrictions. So they're advocating policy responses. Now, it becomes very dangerous, I think, when you get any organisation which becomes wedded to a course of action if they're also supplying what should be objective advice to the government. That's one of the reasons that we put the figures out there, because the more scrutiny there is here, the better. Now, I've got no idea if these, um, these figures are too optimistic, too pessimistic. There's not much to go on. But what you do know is that the more secrecy there is, the greater liability there is for error to creep in to a subject which could not be more important. The government has to take objective advice, but also remember that when so much of the work is done by Imperial College, Imperial are also one of the most forceful advocates for tighter restrictions. They were right at the very start. We look at the Neil Ferguson's famous report, which induced, uh, which inspired lockdown, and look at some of the assumptions behind that report, and they were way too pessimistic. They, were, they pointed to far bigger death toll than we now, now know would have happened. So when you've got the independent adjudicators advocating a policy position, it becomes important to step back, look at the evidence, and that's why we've published it right now. The funny thing is that so far in COVID, you've had a, a bias towards transparency, a bias towards not waiting for peer review, but you publish it and then you wait for comments. You present it with humility. You know that some of your assumptions could be wrong. Proper science invites refutation. It invites debate. And right now, we could be seeing a lot more of this debate right now. There's still so little we understand about COVID, but we can do more, I think, to just promote debate, promote understanding, to have experts world over ask if the decisions being made are being made in realistic assumptions. I hope the spectator's publication of these documents will con contribute in some small way to that process. This is important because... React and Imperial are commissioned to conduct survey. They're not commissioned to offer policy advice. And one of my colleagues said to me, what their conclusion should have been is prevalence appears to be increasing across the nation as a whole, but this masks regional and age-related differences. That's the conclusion of the study. Yet when you read it, it goes in and tells you about, actually the policy measure should be this, based in a scientific paper. That is the corrupt of the problem right now. And I have to say, if we can separate the two, this needs to be a matter of urgency so that actually there can be a more informed decision. Thank you, Fraser and Carl. There's less than a week to go in the US presidential election, and Joe Biden is the clear favourite to win. In this week's issue, Lionel Shriver says she voted for the Democrat through gritted teeth because Donald Trump is unfit for office. Lionel joins me now, along with Freddie Gray, editor of The Spectator's US edition, to explain why. Lionel, in your column this week, you write that Joe Biden is an elderly Democrat lifer whose cognitive capacities remain uncertain. So why have you just voted for him? Uh, because he's running against someone who's even worse. I mean, I am really uh, sorry that uh, we ended up with these particular candidates 
although it could have been worse. We have to remember who else was running on the Democratic side. And I know that's yesterday's story, but we need to counter chickens here. I mean, it's not we're not stuck with Trump versus Elizabeth Warren. And that would put me in a real state of seizure, or for that matter, uh, Bernie Sanders. So I am grateful that I didn't have to make that kind of choice. I mean, I, that would have been paralyzing for me. So what was it that ultimately made you choose Biden over Trump? I, I think Trump is unfit to be president. And I think that's something that we should be able to agree on in a nonpartisan way. I think he is rash. He's poorly informed. He doesn't take advice. And, and he's a, a mass public embarrassment. He misrepresents the nature of the United States and he gives signals to other countries that ours is falling apart. Fred, the assumption seems to be that Trump is going to lose next week. You're, you're in America right now. Is that, is that the picture that you're getting out there? Being here has given me even less idea of what's going to happen. I mean, there's this tremendous enthusiasm gap between the Trump campaign and the Biden campaign. The, the Biden campaign are being very grown up and responsible and pious about the pandemic. And they're doing these tiny events that are drawing no crowds at all. And it might be just a good way of covering up the fact that Biden is not very good at these events and he seems to be doddering all over the place. And then on the other side, you've got this sort of insane last dash by Trump where he's jetting all over the country, visiting four states a day, showing extraordinary energy. I suspect he's being drugged or something. It feels like all the momentum is with Trump because there are all these, these great big rallies happening. But then you just don't know because, of course, the more people see of Trump, the more people who feel like Lionel do about Trump dislike him. So that's the bet that the Biden campaign is making, that people will, it, they could turn it into a referendum on Trump and they'll win. Lionel, Freddie just used the word pious. And in your piece, you say that Biden's dullness could restore a sense of order and, and make America boring again. I mean, do you really think that America can return to this sort of more mundane state or has everyone been whipped up so much that we can, we can never really go back to where we were? Well, of course, time does not run backwards, and I don't imagine that Biden can completely restore the state of play during the Obama administration. I know that's what a lot of people voting for him want. I'm afraid that politics has, uh, since 2016, become ever more volatile, profoundly divided, hateful, and that's not going to go away anytime soon, though I do think that sometimes the best thing that you can do in terms of muting uh, a movement, and in this case I'm referring to the left, is is to give them what they want, <laughs> you know, give them power, and therefore make them behave more responsibly. And I just, I, I think that the left has become very dependent on Trump in terms of revving up their own base and portraying... Um, the conflict is not just another election, but as an existential crisis. I've been concerned, actually, that the number of commentators in the media speculating on whether or not Trump is going to accept defeat and uh, refuse to leave the Oval Office. I have wondered whether that has been so extensive 
that there's a an element of almost throwing down a gauntlet. You know, I, I feel as if this is almost telling Trump, if you don't at least litigate the, the results of the election, if not, you know, uh, order your troops out on the streets with guns and, you know, chain yourself to the Oval Office desk, well, we're going to be disappointed in you. You're going to be a wuss. You know, we're going to, we're, we're going to think that you, you aren't really the strong man we imagined. Now, I, it's perverse, but there's a way in which the left-wing media is trying to provoke what they're pretending to dread. Fred, Lionel says in her piece that Trump, as mentioned, has proven to be the left's most potent recruiting tool. Do you think it's fair to say that he's also been quite a potent recruiting tool for some Republicans, too, who've, who've basically got no choice but to vote for Biden at this point? Uh, that is true. I mean, there are there are never Trump Republicans. I, I don't think they constitute a significant proportion of the, ele- of the electorate. Um, most of them just have a column in, in the Washington Post. Uh, I, I think that I've spoken to quite a lot of Republicans who didn't vote for him four years ago, who will vote for him now. What changed their mind about him? Uh, I think the, the viciousness of the left towards him, the sort of Russiagate story was a thing that dragged on for three or four years almost. And it was a sort of complete joke, really, by the end. And I think people are sort of fed up with with the way the media covers Trump. And it, that, that exhaustion either leads people to Lionel's position, which is give them what they want in a way. Uh, I hope that's not an unfair representation of it. Or it leads them to say these people are evil and only Trump will stop them. But Lionel, you're not, you haven't just voted Democratic, you voted Republican for the Senate. What was your thinking f- for doing that? Oh, it was, a, it was a completely empty gesture, just in order to satisfy an abstract political conviction of mine. And that is that I prefer it in the United States, and it's probably a more generalizable principle anywhere, that the government does not have control of all branches of government. Now, there at least is a a moderate check on the Democrats in the Supreme Court, but day-to-day politics take a long time to make it to the Supreme Court. So practically, having control of both the House and the Senate as well as the executive branch is a kind of carte blanche permission to do whatever the hell you want. And I don't want any party to do whatever it wants. And there is a lunatic fringe in the Democratic Party right now whose influence in a Biden administration is unclear. So uh, I don't I don't want the uh, more radical elements in my own party to be able to pass legislation of any sort. So, you know, that vote of mine won't make the slightest bit of difference. That uh, that seat is destined for a Democrat. It's an Upper West Side Manhattan district. That's a done deal. So it was just a... Uh, it, it, it was just a little gesture for myself, and uh, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, I admitted it in in my column, though I, I also specified that that's the only Republican I've ever voted for in my life. Just finally, I mean, Trump has obviously been a controversial character, but he's certainly given us lots to write about over the past four years. Fred, do you think we're going to miss him? Are you going to miss him? Uh, I will miss the... St- I mean, it has been exhausting, 
trying to cover Trump, covering American politics of the last four years has been has been at times very exhausting. But I will certainly miss him as a story. I mean, as I've always said, he's the gift that keeps on giving. It is, you know, terrifying for humanity and all this, the way that both sides at the moment seem to think that America will end if they don't win this election. But yes, I think I will uh, miss the story very much. But Biden promises to be a sort of very different and stranger type of insanity. Lionel? I am tired of having people with whom, in in broad strokes, I often agree, uh, having to tie themselves in knots to defend Trump as a person, as a politician, and as a president. And I'm sympathetic, but a president is not only a set of policies. It's not just, a president is not only a set of bullet points. It's also a, a person who has to represent and lead the United States. You know, one of the things that Biden says on the campaign trail over and over again, usually talking about race and immigration. Now, we're better than this. We're better than this. This is not who we are. He's talking broadly about the American people and, and, of course, especially about Democrats. But I think the same could be said for American conservatives. We're better than this. We have principles also. And we have a sense of decency. And we deserve someone who represents our point of view. We're not monsters. We don't want to put all the children in cages. We have a sense of direction that we would like to see the country in. And we disagree with the Democrats on a number of points. But we also have a moral compass. And we will not sell out that moral compass for just anyone. We will not sell it out for just being in power. And that's why the Republicans have not recovered themselves in glory during this administration, because the impression they give is that just so long as technically the Republicans uh, have their grips on the executive, then they will look the other way in relation to just about anything. Now, I, I think American conservatives are better than this, and I ho- hope that next time round they f- find a candidate who represents conservative values in a way that suggests that there are such a thing as conservative values. Lana and Freddie, thank you for joining. And finally, will COVID-19 finally kill off cinema? Theatres can reopen with social distancing and mandated mask wearing, but the crowds haven't returned. In the magazine this week, Tanya Gold reflects on her relationship with the big screen. She joins me now along with Igor Taroni Lalek, the arts editor of The Spectator. Tanya, your piece this week is a love note to cinema and film houses. Can you start by telling listeners how this love affair started? When I was a child, my mother used to let me watch quite peculiar movies. I grew up just as VHS was, was, was introduced. And I remember being allowed to watch Patton was the first movie we ever had. And then she'd let me watch quite strange, experimental 1970s films like Diary of a Mad Housewife, which you probably haven't even heard of, and, and, and Rebecca, film noir classics. I was allowed to watch these very young from about the age of seven, seven or eight. And um, uh, so I've always loved cinema. And when I was um, 17, I became an usherette in, in the upper six. I managed to get myself a job at Options in Kingston-upon-Thames, where I grew up. 
and I was allowed to inhabit this this glorious old cinema. It had it had been built in the nineteen thirties, and I became completely bewitched by cinema when I worked there. By cinema where it should be seen in a cinema. And what was it like working as an usherette? Oh, it was completely magical. I, I, I think in uh, Sunset Boulevard, uh, she talks about, uh, Norma Desmond talks about uh, those wonderful people out there in the dark because it's, it's dark and because it's cavernous and, and, and because the films are huge and the people are huge and the dialogue is huge and you can't really see anything else. You can open yourself completely to this to this incredible art form and I think people forget today what an incredible art form cinema is because and I hope this isn't a very controversial thing to say uh, so many of the big movies that are coming out of Hollywood now are just such a load of rubbish. Igor it's fair to say that cinema was declining before Covid but do you think Covid's been the final nail in the coffin for it? I hope not I mean, I don't, I can't imagine it will. It is such a perfect art form, the form and function, the cinema itself, the cinema experience, I cannot agree more with uh, Tanya. It is magical, it's seminal for so many of us. It is the art form that takes you out of your world. There's no other art form that does that. I mean, theatre attempts to, music to some extent, emotionally does that, but cinema is everything, and it has been everything for so many of us, and I, I remember, just like Tanya, seminal moments in cinema and in the same way that you know you have lovers and you remember where you met them you know you do remember everything about the surroundings of certain films you've seen that change your life you know the, the the exact kind of feel of the of the seat exactly where you were in the cinema the kind of the raking all this kind of stuff so I don't know I mean th- this kind of thing is not going to go I mean, what is interesting is that cinema has been in decline for years, of course, because of the rise of television in the 1950s, which created a crisis for, for, for Hollywood that, that's never really solved. I mean, the high point was 1946. It's a Wonderful Life was playing, I think, uh, 1.6 or maybe even 1.7 billion cinema tickets were sold in Britain that year. It went down to, uh, to a low in the 80s of about 400 million. But we, we've had a partial recovery due to these these terrible franchises like like the avengers but 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 cinema has been in decline for years one thing that does cheer me even though we're hearing about the closure of cineworld they're saying it's not permanent i hope it isn't odeon and view have closed about a quarter of their screens over the weekend so they're they're operating a, a very small way compared to last year we we may hopefully see some small Return. Some cinemas are hanging on. The Prince Charles in Leicester Square, these, these small art house, out high cinemas will find an audience. But I think the days of, and I'm sure you'll agree, I go, of, of cinema of being the mass culture uh, have gone. You know, we lost cinema to television. And one of the saddest things I was hearing when, when people were talking about No Time to Die, the Bond movie being uh, delayed until next spring, an act of absolute cowardice on the part of MGM, is saying, oh, can't we just watch it on Netflix? I mean, can we, are we really going to pretend that watching a film on television has anything of, 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 of the power or the ability to move than watching it on an 80-foot high screen? I mean, I'd love to hear from you, Igor. I remember watching Casablanca in the Odeon Leicester Square. They showed it for one night only in the 90s, and I wept and I wept and I wept, and it was it's a completely different experience. It is a different experience, but... And I, I agree. I mean, those moments in the cinema... I mean, I think, you know, watching Honey, I Shot and the Kids when I was sort of nine is, you know, still imprinted on my brain. But kind of every, every, every kind of seminal, you know, cinema, every kind of great film that you see in the cinema is imprinted on your brain. But there are films that I've seen on the small screen, on TVs. I remember seeing Barry Lyndon on a 
tiny little TV in, in a library in Harvard, and it had exactly the same impact. And the thing is, you know, a screen is big because it's far away, it's in a cavernous room, but when it's on your TV, you're closer to it. You know, it's, it's, just, a, it's just a proportion thing. And actually, it's just as big when it's... I mean, I've had amazing experiences in lockdown at home, um, watching film. I think film is the only high art form you can experience in lockdown at the moment. So I've been watching films every night, every single night. And it is just as immersive because the screen is closer to you. So I think, you know, I remember watching Funny Games at home on Channel 4. And it's one of those famous movies that uh, the, the characters pause the film and re rewind it. And I thought it was hallucinating, you know. And and it was late at night, it was like one o'clock in the morning and it was on Channel 4 and I just sort of, I didn't know what the hell it was. And I was 16 and, you know, that kind of experience is is just as visceral as, as the cinema one, although it, it's different. My real worry is Netflix, is the TV-fication of film and the form of film is going to change and this is my real worry, is, is, is film will exist but it'll exist in a TV form and for me, TV, it may be a golden age for TV but it's a very cheap version of 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 culture compared to the the golden age of film. I mean, TV is trash, still trash, and I and I won't have anyone sort of say that it can supplant the great movies because there's no interest in the visual, there's no interest in the form, the editing, the music. It's just chat, 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 chat. It's just it's basically people who can't be bothered to read novels go to TV. Whereas film is so much more than just dialogue. And this is the real worry with cinema. It will basically be taken over by Netflix, Amazon Prime, and you'll, you'll, you'll get all this really sort of second-rate TV film that I think that is the real worry with cinema. It won't anymore be a visual experience. And just finally, can I ask you both to recommend a film that ideally you'd love to watch in the cinema, but right now, given the circumstances, probably would just have to be watched at home? God, they won't get it in the cinema. What I have been dreaming of is watching Some Like It Hot in the Empire One in Leicester Square. From home, I, I mean, I've been watching films every night and, and, so, and I've seen a, a lot of films that I should have seen by now and haven't and been blown away. I'd say um, if we're talking about sort of golden age of cinema, watch Howard Hawks' Scarface, 1932, Film does not get better than that. It's the first thriller ever made and it is the best thriller ever made. Thank you, Tanya, and thank you, Igor. And that's it for this week. If you pick up the issue, you can read everything we've talked about on the podcast and more. We've got an interview with Trump's former fixer, Michael Cohen, an election notebook by Douglas Murray and an article by Francis Pike on why Turkey is severing its links with the West. And if you want to be in with a chance to win a bottle of Paul Roger Champagne, the Spectator's House Champagne, just fill out our short podcast survey online. We'd love to hear what you think about our shows. Visit spectator.co.uk forward slash podcast survey. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions. Plus, get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph.